I didn't know uh, exactly that I would get into a, a series this summer, but I ended up into that because um, on June 7th, when we launched Feeding Children Everywhere and with a tag on it this year saying grace, I, I preached out of uh, one of the signs of the seven signs that the Gospel of John has about Jesus, all of these pointing towards him as the Messiah. And uh, that miracle that, that we looked at was the one where he fed the, the multitude of 5,000 men plus whatever women and children were there. And then I got, to, uh, I got to thinking about, well, you know, these seven signs are significant. And I started doing some reading on them. And, and so that evolved into where uh, we, are, we are doing a sermon series entitled Miracles of the Master. And uh, last week we looked at what happened when he came to a wedding in Cana of Galilee and they ran out of wine. And we talked about that, that emphasis was on joy and our need perhaps for joy and to have our joy tank filled. Well, today we look at the second of these signs uh, in John's Gospel, and we will finish all of these seven uh, by the end of uh, August. Uh, there will be one interruption with Lord's Supper that we'll have on, on the 23rd of August. But we'll finish them by the end of August. Uh, and it's unique in the fact that John is the one who records these and calls them signs uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Today we look at uh, John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, and we see that it's a totally different scene. The wedding scene was a, a joyful occasion about a wedding, and Jesus saved embarrassment. Uh, this one is about a health issue uh, and a distraught father. And so here's what we read, beginning in verse 46, John 4. Once more he visited Canaan and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. And then John concludes with this statement. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Now, when John says this is the second miraculous sign that Jesus has performed, uh, he's talking about the second miracle that Jesus did in the Galilean area. And I've already mentioned the fact that the first one was at a wedding, and so say with a time of joy and celebration. The second miracle, though, is associated with sickness. A royal official comes, and his son, he says, is at the point of death. And when sickness comes, and it seems like there's no answer to the sickness and no reason for the you know, way to cure that, uh, there's a time of anxiety. So in comparing these two situations, uh, these first two miracles, we see that life, I think, has as much joy as it does sometimes moments of anxiety and despair. And Jesus is needed in our life in both of those circumstances. So the first miracle was about joy. And we were challenged last week to think about our joy level. 
As believers in Christ, we ought to be filled with joy no matter what the circumstances are that are going on in our life. Happiness is one thing. Joy is being filled with the Spirit of Christ and being able to celebrate in every aspect of life. So that was talking about joy and needing to fill our joy tank. And we learned that Jesus is always ready and willing and more than able to fill us with that joy for life. The second sign when we look at today is a miracle uh, worked in a man's life in a time of crisis. I think our scripture describes him as a, as a desperate father, not just a Roman official, but a desperate father, and he is in need of a miracle. And the application for our life, for your life today, could be this. You might be sitting here today, and you are filled with anxiety because of uh, whatever might be causing that anxiety in your life. Maybe it's an issue in your family or your health or your business. You know, it could be a multitude of things. And you need a miracle. You need Jesus, the Messiah, to work a miracle in your life and to dispel that anxiety and to replace it with faith. Well, now, when we talk about miraculous signs and miracles, then it raises a question, and that is, you know, what is a miracle? How would we define a miracle? What classifies as a miracle? And do we really see and experience miracles today? Does God still work miracles to change our circumstances if we have the right kind of faith. So the question for all of us today is, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that God can still work a miracle in your life through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Well, we got a video of a kind of on-the-street interview asking people that simple question about miracles. Let's listen to what they have to say. Even miracles? Absolutely. Have you ever seen a miracle? Oh. I, I'm sure I have, but I, I just, nothing comes to mind right now. But yeah, I, I believe so. Uh, yeah, I, I do. do. Yeah. Have you ever seen a miracle? Finding him, I think it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Have you ever seen a miracle? I have. Uh, <laughs> excellent answer. Yes. Have you ever seen a miracle? No. I've heard of them. I've seen movies about them. I haven't personally seen one. No. Yes. Have you ever seen a miracle? Yes. Care to elaborate? Just to my left here is my son, uh, born five months ago, and he's a miracle gift of God. Yes, I do. Have you ever seen a miracle? Um, no, but I've heard a lot about it. Uh, it depends what you define as a miracle. I think having six grandchildren is a miracle. So a miracle is what every in the eyes of the beholder. And I think that a miracle, that it's a miracle that we have had the six grandchildren, and it's a miracle that that the world is what it is. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Have you ever seen a miracle? No. I do believe in miracles. I've had many miracles happen to me in my lifetime. Could you share one with us? Well, one of my dreams was to live out here on the beach, and I came to Naples 19 years ago, and for two years now I've been living on four blocks from the beach. That is a miracle. Because not too many people can live out at the beach. No. Have you ever seen a miracle? No. Or do you believe in miracles? Yes, I do. Have you ever seen a miracle? Oh, that's a good question. I guess I would have to say yes because I've seen what God has done in my life and how he turned my life around. 
And to me, that in itself is one of the greatest miracles that we can witness here. Well, how would you answer that question? Number one, do you believe in miracles? And number two, have you ever seen a miracle? Uh, not. Some of you have already said yes, okay. So how do we define a miracle? Some people would say a miracle is a time and place and a point in the circumstances of life where God intervenes and does something spectacular. And I think what's missing out of that, that concept and that definition of miracles is the fact that it seems like God is described as kind of being absent from his creation and that um, he is um, inactive in relationship to it until he decides to intervene and do something miraculous. And that's not true because God not only created the world, but the world exists and is held up by him. And so he's always involved in the life of, of this world and the life of your world and every creature in it. So I think it's better to say that a miracle happens when God, who is continuously active in the world, breaks his usual pattern and does something extraordinary. In fact, a dictionary definition, if you want a clinical definition of a miracle, says it's an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Now, I like the way C.S. Lewis, the prolific English Christian writer, said as he explained a miracle. He said that a miracle is something unique that breaks a pattern so expected and established that it could be broken. We could hardly understand that that pattern could be broken. And he gives this example. If for thousands of years a woman can become pregnant only by sexual intercourse with a man, then if she were to be pre become pregnant without a man, it would be a miracle. Well, we know that story, don't we? But that is a miracle. It takes place in the Scripture about the incarnation of Christ. And so I, I, I've seen miracles, and I'm sure you have. Maybe you just don't realize it. And we'll talk a little bit about why sometimes maybe we don't see those. But the three greatest miracles that I see all the time is, number one, creation. God spoke, and he placed this beautiful world into existence. And so many minute details that allow us to be on this earth as it twirls around in, it, in, in our atmosphere, and all the stars and the sun rises and the tide setting and coming and going, you know, and ebb and flow of life and the tides and all of that, and God is in control of all that. That's a miracle of creation for me. I'm awed by it every day. To watch a sunrise and a sunset and to see God's creative power, even in a, a thunderstorm last night. And then the second one great miracle that I think is the, that of incarnation, where God did become flesh in the birth of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that broke a pattern, that Christ was born without the sexual union between a man and a woman. And then there's the ultimate one, I think, a miracle, and that is of redemption, that this holy, righteous God would love us so much that he would send his son in the flesh to die on the cross of Calvary so that our sins could be forgiven and we could have a relationship with him. Now, what's the purpose of the miracles that God does? Well, most of them are to help someone. Uh, I think basically everybody on there was uh, on target on the video about seeing miracles and experiencing it. I don't know that getting a house and living your dream, living on the beach or near the beach is a miracle. You know, that's that's not in my category of miracles. That's just something that she wanted and it worked out that way. But when we look at, at, at John's gospel and he calls these seven miracles that Jesus does, the seven signs, then they're always pointing beyond the miracle for us to see the miracle worker. 
And that's what we need to do when we look at these signs in John's gospel. And any time that we see something miraculous taking place, we shouldn't be awed by the miracle, but we should be awed by the miracle worker. So what is the sign pointing to? What do these signs point to? Now, you always got to remember, when you see a roadside sign, that as a sign pointing towards something, that isn't the place, the store, or the event, or whatever. It's advertising that. It's pointing towards that. So this sign, the second sign, the miraculous event, is a sign that tells us that Jesus is a faith developer. He wants to develop our faith so that it is deeper and stronger and more powerful as we deal with life. And I would call that, as the sermon title indicates, a faith for life. A faith for life because Jesus works that miracle in our life as he creates us and develops us as strong, mature believers in his image. Uh, Tom Landry was a long time, long ago, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And this is what he said. He said, the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they really want in life. Now, isn't that what Jesus does with us? He is a faith developer, and to develop our faith, it's not always good things that take place in our life. Sometimes we go through times of trials and tribulations and periods of sorrow and grief and pain, as well as joyous experiences, and they all work together in God's divine power as Jesus coaches us through those events to develop within us a faith for life. And I think we see that when we look more closely at this Roman official who was a distraught father. And there are three things I simply want to point out to you about this faith for life. Number one is this. A faithful life urges us to come to Jesus with our needs. Now, that might seem to be pretty obvious. But the experience that I have in watching our culture today and seeing how people deal with issues and circumstances and situations is Jesus isn't necessarily their first choice. Uh, Sometimes uh, they, they deal with friends or they deal with maybe internet or self-help books. Sometimes they go to the extreme of hearing what Dr. Phil has to say about this issue. Um, I don't even know whether it's Oprah and Dr. Laura, are they still on the airways giving advice and all that? Some people believe in that and that's where they go. But you look at this distraught father in verse 47 and, and John says, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Well, who was this royal Roman official? Well, it probably, when he's indicated he was from Capernaum and he was a royal official, it probably means that he was an official in the service of Herod Antipas, who was a tetrarch of Galilee. And, and this Roman official, this distraught father, traveled 20 miles from Capernaum to Galilee to be there where Jesus was. And not only did he have to cross those 20 miles on foot, But he also had to cross an even greater distance socially. Here he was a nobleman, an officer in the Roman government, an army. And he had to come and bow down, literally, before this itinerant preacher and a Jewish carpenter. And also, think about this. As a royal official in the the Roman army and, and the governor's court, who did he have the utmost allegiance to? He had to say, Caesar is Lord. He had to bow to Caesar with an undying devotion. And besides that, he probably also worshipped several other pagan gods. 
I mean, think about that. That's the background from which this man comes. But he comes in desperation to Jesus and pleads with him to return with him and heal his sick son. Now, when you look at Jesus and see the, the surprising answer in verse 48, he says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, Jesus wasn't just talking to that Roman official. He was talking to everybody there because uh, it's in the second person uh, plural when he talks about you. He's talking to all of them that most of the people who were there were following him to see another sign. They wanted to see something great. Jesus, that, that, that thing at the wedding, that was great. Best wine I've ever tasted. What are you going to do today? Well, what are you going to do today that's exciting and different? You know. Now, here's what I've discovered. A lot of times... Before we make major decisions about trusting God, following God, answering God's call, we kind of look for signs. And there are even some biblical examples of that. Remember Gideon? He put out the fleece on two different occasions, so we call that sometimes putting out the fleece to see if this is really what God wants you to do. You see, I, I struggled with my, my call all the way through my life until finally I decided that the only way we're going to resolve this is that I have to make a decision and step out in faith. And that's what I've found then all the way through my life. That when I am willing to make a decision by faith and I step out and follow God, then he gives me the signs that affirm the decision that I have made. Have you ever had that to happen in your life? When God is seeking to stir in your soul, we want clarification, don't we? And it's like, God, give me a sign. Give me a sign. You know why I think we need to ask for that sign? And we want to make sure that we're reading God right. It's because we aren't in the relationship with God we need to be. God is not stagnant. He's always active. We're the ones who aren't moving. And sometimes when we see God moving, we sense God moving. And especially in our life, he wants us to do something. We're saying, well, Lord, I need a sign. And God's saying, you just watch me and follow me and you'll see all the signs that you need. See, what we need to do is gain spiritual momentum. We need to get inertia going. And, and the problem with us is that most of us are not going. We're not moving. We're not growing. We aren't doing anything to develop that faithful life. And when God moves, we're hesitant to follow after him. You look at this Roman official and you see he made the move to Jesus despite numerous obstacles. And a faithful life will come to Jesus. Now, here's a second observation. A faithful life is a persistent faith. Persistency here proved the sincerity of this man's request, didn't it? Verse 49, as Jesus said, you know, unless you see signs, you're not going to believe. Verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my son dies. I think maybe this raises a theological question for us. It does for me at least. And that is, why did Jesus not make it easier for people and this official to believe, but he challenged them in their circumstance and situation? I have an answer. It might not be the right one, but I think that it has credibility. And that is, I think that because a faith that requires no effort is really not much of a faith, is it? In fact, that's what faith is all about, isn't it? But God oftentimes uses time and our persistence to allow us to be sure of our requests that we make of him. See, there's got to have been those times in the life of every one of us 
And you could be going through one of those times right now. A time of despondency. You think God is not, not near you. You think God is not active. He's not answering your prayers. You've got a crisis on your hands. You don't see any positive outcome that could come from it at all. There's a great sense of anxiety in your heart, in your life. You're at the point of losing your faith and giving up on your spiritual growth. And remember what Jesus told us, especially in prayer. He said we should always pray and not give up. And then he goes on to say that we should always ask, always seek, and always knock. Because when we ask, it will be given to us. When we seek, we will find. And when we knock, the door will be open. But persistency is definitely a part of our faith. And that kind of faith takes effort on our part. It isn't just handed to us by God. But Jesus is the faith developer, and he uses all those circumstances in our life to develop that faith in us so that we have that faith for life. And persistence into pursuing that kind of faith is what allows us to develop the second step in developing that faith for life. And we see that with this Father. And God honors that persistence. And then here's the third observation that I make from this story. And that is that a faith for life takes God at his word. A faith for life takes God at his word. Now, I think this third lesson this story teaches us that if we're going to have our needs met, we have to take Jesus at his word. And I think we need to look very carefully at verse 50 as a challenge to us. This man came from probably a pagan background, as I've already mentioned. He was a Roman official. He was loyal to Caesar. But he came to Jesus, and I think he had to have faith to do that. And look what happens in verse 50. When Jesus said, go your way, your son will be healed, The man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. You know what I find interesting? One of the many things I find so interesting in life. We'll take the word of somebody that we don't even know as gospel, right? We'll take somebody's word for a matter. And when we come to the word of God and God's speaking to us, no. No. God couldn't do that. God couldn't ask me to do that. He really doesn't want me to do that. Right? Have I hit a nerve there? Do you really take God at his word? You have to take him at his word. See, the, the, the father, the Roman official said, Sir, come down before my son dies. And Jesus said, You may go. Your son will live. See, most of the miracles that we were seeing and think about, Jesus actually touched the people and did something to them. This was a distance of 20 miles away that he, he did that miracle. And what did that father do when he left? He left in faith. And the Bible tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, that's the dilemma of faith in it. That if we're going to take God on his word, then we're trusting him to provide or to do what we see absolutely no sign of taking place. That's what this Roman official did. Jesus simply said to him, go your way, your son will be healed. And don't miss this part of the story. That Roman official had to go 20 miles back home But this event took place in the seventh hour, which was early afternoon, around 1 o'clock. He had time to get back to Capernaum. 
But he took his time going back and obviously spent the night somewhere on the way. And his servants then come and they meet him somewhere on the way. And they say, Rejoice, your son is alive. He's well. Now, I don't know why the man dawdled. Maybe, maybe because he thought this was going to be a gradual healing and his son would be somewhat better when he got there. Maybe he stopped to do something else. I, I don't know. Maybe he went to another shrine or something. We don't know. But we do know that very casually he went back home. I think it was an indication of his faith in what Jesus said. And he asked, a disciple, he asked his uh, household, what time did this take place? And they said about 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. And the man knew that that was the exact hour that Jesus said to him, Go home, your son will live. See, a faith for life is a faith that takes Jesus at his word. And trust is what allows us to take Jesus at his word. So I, would, I would venture to guess this Roman official didn't know a whole lot about Jesus. He probably didn't know a whole lot about the Old Testament history of the Jewish people, even though he was there working among them. But I think he knew after a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ enough about Jesus to take him at his word and to trust him, to trust him. And that's what we're called to do as well. Now I want us to wrap this up by, by looking at the fact of what happened after this event. There are two realities, I think, when we see what took place in the household. And once the story came about and they understood what had happened, the Scripture says that everybody in the household believed in Jesus. Now, here are two realities about this story. Number one is, faith proves that God can be trusted. In this case, this nobleman's son was healed. And this father, this Roman official, got what he requested and more. Not only was his son healed, but everybody in the household, including himself, came to have faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we have to realize that faith also means that we have to have the ability to accept what God decides to do in our life when he doesn't do what we ask him to do. In this case... Jesus performed the miracle and he healed this man's son. He doesn't always do that. But God has a perfect plan. And we have to be willing to trust in that perfect plan because whatever God does and however he does it, he does it to bring glory and honor to his name. But then the second thing that I would point out about this faith of this Roman official is that faith for life is contagious. See, this official's faith in Jesus was so obvious and attractive that his whole household believed. Isn't that magnanimous? And I think it says to us that when we have a growing, developing, maturing, trusting faith, that that's a contagious faith. And people around us will want that same kind of faith. Because that is a faith for life. And a faith for life comes when we are in a growing, dynamic, evolving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when we allow God to develop that faith in us, then we see God at work 
we're aware of more miraculous acts that God performs. I think we see life through a whole new uh, perspective, through spiritual eyes that are of faith now. And we know that God is God, and we can trust him in all the events and circumstances of life. It doesn't matter what issue you're facing. If you need a miracle, God can do it. But you have to be willing to trust that he's going to do it in his way. And that he will always do it for his honor and his glory. Father, today we're awed by how you moved in the life of this Roman centurion, this official, this distraught father. And how Jesus did for him what he requested. And how the result was a faith that grew to maturity in a short while and was contagious and that others responded to that as Jesus brought healing to his sick son. Father, I pray that as we're challenged by this story, the second sign about Jesus, that we will be pointed beyond this miracle and we will be pointed towards Jesus. And we will see him in all of his miraculous glory. And we will allow him to develop our faith in such a way that we will trust him for whatever he does in our life. And we pray for that in the name and through the name, and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.